Well, we are in the middle of our series called Vital Signs, and throughout the series, we've been spending each week looking at one of the Ten Commandments. We consider the Ten Commandments uh, vital for us to be faithful followers of Jesus and vital signs for us uh, as we try to follow him faithfully. Because of the ever-changing values of our culture, we believe that it's more and more important that we cling to the values that Scripture teaches us. By exploring the commandments, it's our hope that we better recognize whether we're being influenced by God's word or the culture that surrounds us. We live in a world where we continually long to make what we have greater, greater than what it currently is. In our efforts to make something better, it's common practice for us to try and add just a little something extra to what already exists. When we get ice cream, we add a little bit of hot fudge. Or a little, amen. I've never got an amen to hot fudge before. Or, or candy to it. All right. Uh, when we get a new TV, of preferably 60 plus inches, uh, we got to get that sound system to make it a better experience. And uh, when we get that new car, we got to get those nice rims or maybe that heated steering wheel. Who here has a heated steering wheel? Those things are game changers, i got to tell you. Underrated. Um, but sometimes it's debatable that what's being added to the equation is actually a good thing. There are times in life when something's added, it actually takes away from what already exists. And oftentimes what makes things better or worse is often in the eyes of the beholder. Exhibit A, nuts and banana bread and cookies. Terrible. Make a great thing gross. Raise your hand if you're with me on the nuts and banana bread and in our... Raise your hand if you're an enthusiast of it. That's okay. It's okay. Not too much judgment. All right. All right. What about adding kazoos to a first grade birthday party table? All right. Does that make it better? Raise your hand. How about it makes it worse? All right. That one's almost unanimous for those that are participating. I want to see a little more hands up there. All right. What about adding country music to a road trip? Oh, terrible. Raise your hand, though. If, you're, if, if, if you think it's awesome, raise your hand. Proud. Hi. It's great. Raise your hand if you're a sane individual like myself. All right. Perfect. Okay. I got one more. What about adding another person to your marriage? I'm not going to make you raise your hands for this one. All right? Oftentimes, it can be debatable whether adding something to something makes it better. But I'm going to bet that we're all on the same page with this one. When another person is added to our marriage, it takes away from the equation and it makes it worse. What's crazy is that even though most of us here in this room would agree with the fact that it's bad to add another person to our marriage, I'm going to bet that most of us if not all of us, have been impacted by infidelity, whether personally or through our friends and through our family. Adding someone to marriage is subtraction by addition. You will subtract from your marriage whenever you add someone else to the equation. Marriage was, cr was created by God to be between one man and one woman. And when the we allow for another person to enter that holy equation. It takes away from it. Today, my hope, 
as we dive into scripture together is that we gain a greater understanding of God's view of adultery and find greater wisdom and instruction on how we can begin to align our hearts with his. Our scripture for today is found in Exodus 20, verse 14, and our secondary passage is Matthew 5, verse 27 through 30. Our scripture reader for this week is Alexis Pearson. So Alexis, would you please head to the middle? And then if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And we, we say this every week, but we stand for the reading of God's word and we face the center to remind us of just how central it is supposed to be to our lives. So whenever you're ready, Alexis, go ahead and get started. You shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Thanks, Alexis. You can all be seated, please. So our current cultural definition of adultery is voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than their spouse or partner. But that doesn't fully entail what it meant to Old Testament Jews. For us to understand what God was saying to them, we need to understand the context of what it meant to them. Like today's definition, the Jewish understanding of adultery was action-oriented. It centered on the sexual action that was committed, but there were some differences in the parameters of what was considered adultery, depending on the people that were involved in it. The sin had a greater focus on the behavior of the wife. The act of adultery happened when a married woman had a sexual relationship with a man outside of her marriage. By Torah law, it was, scripturally, it was not scripturally considered adultery if it was the husband that was having sexual relationships outside the marriage. Sounds like a pretty lopsided commandment, doesn't it? Now, to be fair, relations between married men and unmarried women became rabbinically prohibited, but did not qualify as adultery by a biblical standard. So it was looked down upon by many rabbis, but it was not in Scripture against it. The Torah doesn't say why only a married woman having sex outside of marriage was considered adulterous. But traditional Jewish law sometimes regarded marriage as an acquisition of sorts in which a woman was permitted to her husband and forbidden to all other men. In effect, it was like she belonged to him, but he did not belong to her. Because culturally there was an aspect of ownership that husbands had over their wives, the act of adultery was more theft-focused in its nature. A Jewish understanding behind the sin was that when a man's wife chose to have a sexual relationship with another man, the other man stole what was rightfully his, the fidelity of his spouse. The rights between husband and wife were not equal. But that doesn't mean that men were not held to a level of accountability for their transgressions there. Any man, whether single or married, that engaged in a sexual relationship with another man's wife 
would be held to the same level of punishment and accountability that the wife was held to. Because the infidelity was considered wrong against the, a wrong against the husband, it meant that the husband had the right to determine the penalty for both his adulterous wife and the man involved. It was a big deal. Ultimately, he would be the one that had the right to choose what would happen to them. But they'd receive the same penalty. When someone committed adultery, it was worthy of and called for drastic punishment. In Deuteronomy 22:22, it says that those who committed adultery were to be put to death. Breaking this command was such a big deal that it was death-worthy. One of the reasons the sin was considered such a big deal was because it was believed that it paralleled or metaphored the command to have no other gods or idols before the one true God. The idea was just as we are to devote ourselves to one God, so too are we to devote ourselves to our one spouse. For the Israelites, adultery was about the action that was taken. And its focus was on uh, what was being taken or stolen from the husband. And it was obviously an important commandment because it represented violating our commitment to God. When we look at what the commandment meant to the Israelites, we can see that there are a number of cultural dynamics and nuances that have changed through the years to where we are today. But what remains consistent with our current culture is that it is still primarily focused on the actions of those involved. Culturally, adultery is still the action that creates infidelity, but what's scary is the act itself has become more and more relative. And that's become more and more diverse in its platform. When I say that it's become relative, I mean adultery can now uh, be defined differently to everyone, depending on, on what people think. It's that my truth mentality. For some, it's only adultery if there's sexual intercourse. And anything that leads up to that leaves this kind of gray area that, that you can wiggle through. Others... It's already adultery once you spent time spending uh, emotional connection with one another. Many of us might believe an emotional affair is just as bad as a physical one. Other of us might believe that it's not as big of a deal. Do we commit adultery when we send provocative and vulgar text messages? Is it adultery if we have an agreement with our partner that it's okay to sleep with other people? Is it adultery if we go to a strip club? Adultery, in many ways, is now in the eye of the beholder. To make matters worse, there are so many ways to engage it. Now we can create inappropriate relationships with others through chat rooms, pornography, texting, email, Snapchat, WhatsApp, FaceTime. And we can even use our Apple Watches, our iPhones, our laptops, and our iPads to keep those relationships more secret from our spouse. I hope you're all getting the point. Adultery has become more and more relative, and its methods diverse. The danger with this is that it becomes easier and easier to justify and do. 
So what does the command to not commit adultery mean to us in our personal context? How do we fight our sinful nature and keep ourselves from falling into moral relativism? In our second passage of the day, Jesus' understanding of the commandment would address the issue in a way that cuts through both the Jewish understanding of the time and our current cultural understanding. In verse 27 and 28, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is saying that adultery is not action-oriented. It's heart-oriented. He was saying that adultery uh, can be committed before actions are even taken. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, blessed are the pure in heart. The message being communicated is that adultery is more of a purity issue than a theft one. We begin to give into adultery the moment we start longing for or enjoying the idea of somebody else in our life rather than our spouse. We do it as soon as the intentions of our actions start to formulate. This means we have to be careful and intentional with the people, the thoughts, and the images that we take in and allow to dwell in our hearts and minds. Because it can start with something as simple as being on vacation with your couple friends and realizing that you like your friend's spouse a little bit more than your own. It can be as simple as seeing a nude scene in a movie and realizing that you want that person more than your spouse. Or while at work, looking more forward to having lunch with our coworker than going home and having dinner with our spouse. When we allow for images and thoughts like these to be indwelling within us, it attacks our purity and we begin embracing our sinful nature. Jesus would call what I'm talking about lust. Lust is the heart's act of adultery. It's a continued infatuation and preoccupation for wanting something that we don't have. Jesus' interpretation of the commandment was not centered on theft, but instead it was lust-focused. When we allow for ourselves to sit in those thoughts and moments, when we start to want to act on those primal desires, we begin to head down the road of adultery. Jesus' difference in interpretation makes the commandment hold us all to a higher standard because it's no longer about what we do, but where our heart and thoughts are focused. Are we focused on our partner or preoccupied with wanting more, wanting someone else? Most of us abstain from the act of adultery. But it's just as dangerous for us if our hearts are filled with it. In verse 29 and 30, Jesus would say that if our eye causes us to stumble, gouge it out. And if our hand does the same, cut it off. Jesus uses hyperbole to communicate that fighting the adulterous nature of our lives calls for drastic practices. Instead of focusing on the punishment, 
Jesus would push us towards changing the way that we live in a way that points us toward the path he has for our lives. He would push us toward greater self-awareness and greater self-control. His call for action is not just for those who have committed adultery, but for each and every one of us. Whether we're neck deep in an affair, or maybe we're in danger of heading down that road, or we have a very, very healthy relationship, Jesus calls us to drastic action. We don't have to be reactive to our sin. We're called to be proactive. So often our first response when we find ourselves struggling with with any sin is we go, what do I need to do? What do I need to stop doing? What do I need to change? What can I do differently? And we start setting these unattainable goals for, for what we want to accomplish. And when we inevitably fail in our goals, we say, whatever. I guess we'll just do it. We get discouraged, and then sin takes over our lives again. The first drastic action that we have to take is surrendering our sin to God. Before trying to address our sin ourselves, we need to come to him first. We have to be willing to humble ourselves by giving our sins up to him, by confessing and repenting of it. Alone, there's no way we're able to conquer our sin. It is only through the power of Christ, only through God with us. But we are promised in Scripture that when we bring our struggles to Jesus, he will lighten our load. He'll give us rest. This is affirmed in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Alone, our struggles with lust and adultery are heavy and they're unrealistic to sustain. But when we bring what we have to the Lord and we take on his yoke, he points us in the direction he has for our lives, the one he wants for us. He bears the weight of our sin and he walks with us in our struggle. We fight a hopeless battle if we don't first turn to God and we try to just take action on our own. But after giving our struggles to God, it is important for us to take action by going to other people who know Jesus that can be our friends, that can mentor us through our walk. There's value to finding a friend or mentor that can be boldly honest in regards to how we struggle with adultery or how we struggle with lust in our lives. It's important for us to create accountability. If we want to keep ourselves from giving into lust, from going down the path of adultery, we need to let others into our lives that can hold us accountable. It's good for us to be intentional in picking those people because we are at our strongest when going through life with other Christian people that truly care about us. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 and 10 says this, Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either of them fall down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. 
we find greater strength to persevere when another brother or sister in Christ walks with us in the struggle. We experience more encouragement when we're doing well. And we have more accountability when we start to fall. But it's important that the dynamic of this relationship have authenticity, honesty, vulnerability, and real accountability. If not, the relationship loses its effectiveness and it can turn into this commiserate over common sin club. Where it's like, oh, hey, you struggle with this too. Nice. Hey, look, we both struggle. Isn't this kind of cool we have common ground? No, that's not going to help us. When we go to God and we lean on godly friends and mentors, we're going to find strength to fight our sinful nature. But in our passage today, Jesus also calls us to take drastic action by cutting out temptation and sin. Jesus uses that bold language, once again, of gouging out eyes and cutting off hands to catch our attention and to communicate that there are things in life that bring us down. And if they do, get rid of it. Stop it. If there's an adulterous relationship you're currently in, stop. That means that if we spend a lot of time hanging out in the office of a coworker that we find attractive, and it starts to become the highlight of our day, cut it out. If we tend to scroll through our feeds on social media, only to come across provocative reels that tempt us to look into, at pornography, cut it out. If we're at the gym and we find our eyes constantly looking up and down at other people, gain some weight. No, I'm just, cut it out. Get rid of it. And if our texting makes us spend more time talking to, thinking about, and becoming more emotionally invested in someone other than our spouse, cut it out. Jesus calls us to take drastic action to keep lust and adultery out of our lives. But are we willing to make the bold decisions that it takes to do something about it? Are we willing to attack the heart of the issue before it impacts our actions. Earlier I stated that the cultural understanding of adultery is defined as sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse or partner. But for a follower of Jesus, we have a different definition. One that holds us to that higher standard. Whether sexual or emotional in its nature, our infidelity does not begin with our actions it begins with our hearts. When we begin to lust for someone outside of our marriage in any way, we engage in adultery of the heart. It's subtraction by addition. When someone's added to our marriage, it subtracts from it. I know there are many here who have felt the negative impacts of marital infidelity whether emotional or sexual. For all that have, I want you to know that God is with you. And he offers his unfailing love, peace, and hope. And it's capable of pushing you towards forgiveness and potentially restoration. And on the flip side, I know that there are people here today that have engaged in adulterous relationships. Know that God still loves you.
And there is grace, mercy, and forgiveness when we humble ourselves and repent of what we did. And God can even bring restoration to you as well. Before we we go into our blessing, I just wanted to finish with one more thought. And that is, there's good news. Subtraction by addition has an exception, and that's Jesus. When we add Jesus to our marriage, it only grows stronger. We do that through praying for one another, praying with each other, and by encouraging each other to grow in our faith. Today's commandment tells us that we're not to commit the act of adultery, but Jesus calls us to a higher standard. He challenges us to be faithful in our hearts. And so as we go forward today, that's my challenge to all of us. In what way can we start adding Jesus to our marriages? Let's close with this blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.